Okay, it is once again the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, which feels very strange because it doesn't feel like a year since the last one rolled round. And given that it is the Edinburgh Fringe and I'm seeing a bunch of shows, I thought I would try to put out a couple more episodes of this podcast, which I have neglected terribly in the last nine months or so. So today I'm going to talk about a show called Omega um, by Beedledom, which is on at the underbelly, uh, and a show called The Shape of the Pain, which is by Crystal from Rachel Bagshaw, which is on at Summerhall. I'll try to keep spoilers to a minimum, but there will be some, so if you are thinking of seeing these shows and don't want to know anything about them, then probably turn your listening device off now and listen after you've seen them. Um, For everybody else, welcome to Stage Brother, a podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and this episode is entitled On Weakness. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar Yeah, sorry, I just realised that I actually didn't check to see what number episode this was. I think it's episode 23, but um, I can't... I've not got the information available to hand and I've not got much time, so I can't go back and re-record. Anyway, this episode is called On Weakness. The reasons for this will hopefully become clear as we go along. So first of all, I want to talk about um, this show called Omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet, the end. And it's a show about a clown who works in an office. She receives printouts on which have numbers on them, and she transfers these printouts to a folder. And in the kind of logic of clowning, she does this repeatedly, often with various degrees of ineptitude. She will um, drop things, she will... Uh, stuff bits of the set will kind of fall apart. She tries to put a coat um, on a coat hanger, which is somebody's hand, and he keeps dropping it, that kind of thing. Um, As she puts the printouts in a folder, she then watches a screen, which has a kind of puppet show on it, showing a person dying in a variety of different ways over the course of the show. And once she sees the person dying, she'll then go and pull a lever, and then she will then um, do something. Often this is putting on a cowl and taking up a scythe and pretending to be the Grim Reaper, or it's throwing a handful of dirt, or it's putting on a Mexican sugar skull. And so we get this idea that she is a kind of admin assistant working for death, working for the natural order of things. And her job is to make sure that people die and she collects the soul. And she collects the soul as a kind of glowing marble, um, which she then pushes into a drawer. And this, you know, essentially this forms the the shape of the, the show. She is compassionate and her essential compassion is tested when she sees a child that is about to die and she decides to intervene. Um, The intervention appears to be successful, the child doesn't die. She then builds up a relationship with the child uh, who draws pictures of her that she puts up in her office. She has her own printout, um, which we assume refers to her eventual time of death, which is hidden in her skirt, which she keeps trying to figure out when that will be, but is constantly told that access is denied. Eventually, um, uh, her shift ends and she leaves the stage. So there are kind of elements of Samuel Beckett in here of a, a kind of a clowning that is to do with the end of things and also a clowning that is to do with repetition that doesn't necessarily go anywhere. And I was thinking, and I, I should, again, we've had conversations on this podcast before about whether or not I should say whether I think something is good or not. I do, I should own up and say that I really love clown shows and that there is something kind of beautiful and heartwarming and reassuring about clown shows. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk about. And as I was watching this, uh, which was very well performed by Doc Cotton, um, I was thinking that if a clown has power, then it is a power of weakness. 
because a clown is the despised. They are the refuse. They are the downtrodden. They are, importantly, the weak. To be inept, to be unfortunate, to be mocked, to be rejected, these are things that people tend to seek to avoid because they are antithetical to the experience of a successful life. And I know that that's a bit of a weird thing to say. I'll, I'll come back to the idea of a successful life in a moment. But the clown is a kind of composite of the underside of the person or the successful person. The clown is built out of misfortunes and they are built out of shadows, the things that hide underneath the surface of the lives that we aspire to. At the same time, clowning is incredibly difficult. Um, as a performance technique, it is, requires intensive and punishing training, it needs lots of natural ability, and it needs a hell of a lot of tenacity because it's very difficult to do for a living. And when you see clown shows, this is recognisable in the performance. You're watching somebody doing something that is very difficult. You're watching a virtuoso if they're very good at it. But when you watch virtuoso clowning, what you're watching is a virtuoso of failure, which is kind of paradoxical. Now, I, I talked about, I mentioned a successful life. So, it is a very odd statement and it's probably very ill-advised, but the thing is, if you're talking about clowning, you kind of need to talk about a successful life because clowning doesn't really work without an other to bounce off. You need the successful person or the idea of the successful person so that you can have the clown because there can't be a shadow without an object, right? So in order to determine what a successful person is, in this case, you look at what the clown is not. Now, in this show in Omega, Dot Cotton's character, I think it's called Sheila, is alone and she is untidy. So the successful person is not alone and they are tidy. She works opposite an empty desk with an absent colleague, and this is actually the other that she bounces off. This is the successful person because the empty desk is ordered, neat, not chaotic, and also seems to have a different function than she does, and she actually wants that function. And I, as I was watching it, I assumed that where she is dealing with death, uh, the other colleague is dealing with uh, birth. I will find out in about two hours' time because I'm going to go. And it's a two-part show, and um, uh, I'm going to go and see it. Yeah, at 2:50. But I just wanted to get this this podcast done now because I think that this speaks well to the shape of the pain. Anyway, so um, she works opposite this 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 desk, and she fantasizes about having her colleague's job. She even goes so far as to put on their comically oversized white lab coat. And she is excluded from the world in a really kind of platonic sense, in terms of she is essentially in the cave. She is, um, her only connection to reality is through her work and through the screen. And her work is deeply curious. And I think for, for two main reasons I found it curious. The first one is that I mentioned clowns exist in the shadow of people. This is one of the reasons we like them, I think, because we're looking down upon them. Um, but... This clown shares her work, the kind of work that she does, with a lot of the spectators. She's an admin person working in an office. So there is, a, I think, a sense in which the, the audience are being gently mocked by the idea of clowning an office worker, which I quite like. But also, um, something more significant is that this downtrodden, inept, and successfully failed creature is being charged with the organisation of death. And thus, she, prov she has this quite extraordinary divine power over humanity, um, the power of death. And in fact, the power to intervene in death. And by showing us this, she seems to be exposing divine power as something that is weak, which was quite fascinating. So she has the power over death. She is a clown. Clowns are weak. And therefore, there's something that's being said here or suggested here about the weakness of divine power. Now, this is actually a topic that I've been coming across quite a lot recently in reading about political theology. And... Um, 
the easiest way I can think of, of describing this quite succinctly is to go to Simon Critchley, who I've talked about before, who's a, a philosopher who's written on a range of subjects, and he wrote a book called The Faith of the Faithless, in which he tried to figure out whether it's possible to have a belief structure for people who don't believe in a higher power. Um, and he was it's political theology, so he's looking at the way in which all forms of government operate on a principle of faith and belief um, in something that doesn't exist. Anyway, it's, at some point he starts reading St. Paul, um, and he really likes St. Paul. He's got this, he starts the chapter by saying, St. Paul is trouble, and he likes trouble. And the reason that uh, Critchley thinks that St. Paul is trouble is because the bulk of Paul's writings appear to attack and attempt to destroy orthodoxies within the Christian church and undermine the power of any kind of religious establishment. That's Paul's cant is constantly to unpick the idea of hierarchical systems of orthodoxies. Um, and the way that he does this is by always positioning himself with the excluded and which Critchley translates in Paul as the shit of the earth the refuse, the people who are left out, the people who are not part of society. And the bit that Critchley is most taken with in Paul is um, his letters to the Corinthians, uh, 1, 27-28, which say, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things which are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And again, we're operating on a strange set of principles by which weak and strong are determined. So for argument's sake, let's say that they're proportionate to the amount of influence a person or an institution wields over others. So if you're weak, you have no influence or little influence. If you're strong, you have lots. Now it's a bad or it's an insufficient definition of power, but if I didn't use that definition, then I would be here all day. So I'll just have to run with it. But I really like this idea that God chooses not just the low and the despised, but the things that are not in order to bring to nothing the things that are. It's a glorious and really weird sentence. And Critchley uh, described this as a, what's called a meontology, which is a branch of philosophy that is dedicated to non-being, or the things that exist outside of being, which is something that we, we kind of unconsciously deal with pretty much all of our lives, because we're always constructing ourselves against the things that we are not, right? And in fact, that's how clowns are constructed, is the... the negative definition of the successful person is latent within the clown. So for Paul, um, Paul's idea of faith is always moving into non-being in order to challenge and ultimately to destroy, to bring to nothing, the things that are. And this is why he resides with the expelled, with the shit of the earth, because they exist as a kind of non-entity, as a kind of non-being away from the uh, main entity of the world. And I think that what seemed to be happening in Omega echoed this for me. You have the clown, who is repeatedly excluded by the virtue of her clownness, by the fact that she is a clown, and also the physical exclusion that she has from a world that she cares for, but that she can only access through a screen, and who, although compassionate, is in fact an agent of destruction because she guides people towards their death. Now, I'm not sure where the conclusion of this is. I just really quite loved this idea of the kind of notion of constructing clowning as a meontology and using it as a way of attempting to unpick and challenge, or mock at least, gently deride the structures of society around it. Um, now, uh, so that's the Omega, which again, I, the, I think was stunning and, and so on, and hopefully that's come through in the way I've talked about it. And if anybody's listening to this that is at the Edinburgh Fringe, I would thoroughly advise going to see it. 
The second show that I wanted to talk about um, is Rachel Bagshaw and Chris Thorpe's The Shape of the Pain, which is playing at Summer Hall, uh, I believe, until the end of the run, which is a one-woman show that is based on Bagshaw's own experiences of complex regional pain syndrome, apparently, according to a, a, a review, um, which the um, in the show, this is the, the term for the, the um, syndrome isn't given. Um, but the show describes a person who is in perpetual agony, regardless of external stimuli. So your brain is constantly telling you that you're in pain, and this is what Bagshaw suffers with. Now, the performer, Hannah McPake, was constantly drawing her attention uh, to bodies, which makes sense because it's a play about physicality. So before she even entered the stage, her pre-recorded voiceover had described her physical form in quite laborious detail, and it had also talked about the topographies of the stage and the set, and the nature and function of the audience. So it was a very meta-theatrical beginning. When she got onto stage, one of her first comments drew our attention to the experimental nature of the show and clarified that she will perform the experiences of another person, of another woman, of Bagshaw, who could not be on stage to tell her own story. So she was saying that she was a conduit. Fine, performers are always conduits. Um, and the experiment that the show was doing was to try to convey the unconveyable or to see whether or not they could, right? Pain cannot be communicated under its own terms or as pain. Pain is required... Um, to be described in alternative languages which are alien to the experience of pain itself. In other words, which never transverse the experience of being in pain. A rational or even an irrational articulation of what pain is is something that doesn't actually contain the experience of being in pain because the experience of being in pain is something that can only be experienced uh, as a singularity. Right? So, and what's strange about this is that everybody has experienced being in pain, but we cannot join any kind of collective comprehension of one person's pain because of the singular nature of pain. And what's more, and if anything, perhaps stranger, um, pain is inaccessible to you or to me as a subject unless we are in pain at this moment. Um, so if you stub your toe and you remember, then, you know, you're in pain, it hurts. And then you remember all of the other times that you've stubbed your toe. Suddenly you get this kind of portal opening up in your head of, oh yeah, I felt this before. But... Once the pain has gone away, you cannot remember precisely the sensation of stubbing your toe at any point in your life until you stub your toe again. So, um, what I'm, I think, let's say for, for argument's sake that the pain, therefore, is a non-conveyable singularity, right? And for McPake to address an audience under the aegis of this non-conveyable singularity is quite refreshing because actually it cuts through a lot of the recent debates about how do you conceptualize the figure of the spectator in uh, drama scholarship there's since Rancière's well actually before Rancière but in 2009 Rancière wrote his Emancipated Spectator and um, Helen Freshwater's written books about spectatorship Susan Bennett as well and they're all very you know very very good and very um, opposed to one another and so on how do we conceptualize the figure of the spectator now if you address the spectator through the ages of pain, then you deprioritize that kind of question because you don't need to conceptualize the spectator. Pain overrides any of those kind of questions, at least at first. And this is where I started getting interested because pain is a very peculiar thing. And one of the strangest things that it does, in, if we're thinking about it as a vehicle for storytelling, is it screws with time. I've already mentioned the past in terms of memory. Um, pain has a very odd past. It does have a past. Um, does it have a memory? Um, and there's a question, I suppose. Uh, yes. God, I just asked a question and answered it myself. Oh, I do apologise. I'll try not to do that again. 
Right, but in terms of pain having a memory, everything has a memory. Pain exists in memory. We tell ourselves, I was in pain that day. But that's not quite the same thing as remembering pain or being able to summon the experience of being in pain since pain is a present tense medium. But, as I mentioned, it is not just a momentary experience because the experience of pain awakens our memory of past pain. So there is a genealogy, it's just not accessible to us unless we're actually in pain at the time. But more than this, pain also frames our experiences. So the memory of pain, or the story we tell ourselves about pain, affects the way in which we live our lives. Um, and the fear of pain is in fact a really important defense mechanism. It's the reason why you don't stick your hand into a fire, for example. You don't want to get it burned, even though it might look pretty. It might look pretty, really, Sam? When? Whatever? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've never stuck my hand in a fire. I don't know if it would look pretty. I assume it wouldn't. I'm not going to stick my hand in a fire, whether it looks pretty or not. I'm glad we've got that sorted. Moving on. Um, so, where was I? Completely forgotten. Uh, pain being, right, pain being a defense mechanism. Okay, so, except, so, out with the direct experience of pain. Pain exists um, principally as a thing that we tell ourselves in a language that is alien to it. So, you know, have you ever been in agony and somebody... Uh, says, how are you feeling? You just want to, like, rip off their skin and throw it out of a moving car. Um, and then say, now you can feel how it's being pain, because you've put them in pain. That's the only way you can describe being in pain. But, of course, describing being in pain is, unless you are going to inflict pain upon somebody else, the only way of trying to get someone else to understand how you are feeling, which is the task that they set themselves in this show, this one-woman show where um, McPake stands there and she talks, she performs as Bagshaw, although she never calls herself Bagshaw, um, and she talks about a relationship that she's had, um, broadly speaking. That's more, more or less the narrative. Although I think that the show is more interested in the pain than the relationship. Um, so pain is a really weird form of storytelling, a weird subject in terms of storytelling. I've mentioned storytelling in previous episodes. Storytellers borrow their authority from distance, right? Things happen far away or a long time ago. The storyteller bridges the gap, which is why the audience listens to them. But the illusion of the story is that if the audience had been present at the events of the story, then they would have no need of the storyteller, because they could have experienced the story directly. So in this instance, McPake borrowed her authority from Bagshaw, and, you know, it's actually quite um, straightforward. She kept referring to the woman who was suffering this, this pain, and she kept pointing off stage, saying she's not here now, so I'm talking in her place. Um, but... There's also this thing, if Bagshaw had been there, then we still wouldn't have, an we wouldn't have had access to the events of the story, because the events of the story were to do with pain, which is something that we cannot access. Um, they were using other strategies as well, lights and sound predominantly, often very jarring, very harsh, very um, discordant lighting and sound, in order to try to, I think, awaken a sense of pain within the audience. Um, the most they managed with me was extreme discomfort, but I suppose that's not too far from it. Um, and there was, I think, the, the, the reason I wanted to talk about this show, the, the, the point of, of most significance for me was there was a, a crescendo where the lights and sound reached fever pitch and Bagshaw was delivering one of the speeches about what pain is. And then at some point she said something to the effect of, at this point she's not there and I have to take over. Meaning that when Bagshaw's pain becomes too intense, Bagshaw vanishes from herself. She is expelled which I think is fascinating for a lot of reasons. Um, in one respect, we're engaging here again with the um, experience of weakness insofar as uh, pain temporarily gains the upper hand and uh, the individual is no longer present within their own skin. But that experience is then inverted by the performance which champions Bagshaw's ability to live an independent life um, with significant amounts of pleasure despite the pain and quite rightly points out that this is a kind of strength that most of us don't have to 
um, possess, mercifully, when we go about our daily lives. But there's more than that. And what caught my, my interest was this idea that there is an empty centre at the point of greatest intensity, where the, the production has been heading, the experience of pain, the nerve centre of being, if you quite literally, in fact, um, is empty. It's, there's, there's an absence there. There is not a person. It's not just non-conveyable, but it doesn't exist. And this is why I wanted to talk about Omega and the shape of the pain together, because I think that they're both, therefore, engaging with the notion of a meontology, a non-being, in order to tell their stories. And that is something that, um, I've, again, I've come across recently, that Giorgio Agamben, the philosopher, talks about as essential to storytelling. The idea of the non-being is essential to storytelling. Um, and in a very brief, dense, and very dense essay called The Fire and the Tail, he uses the following allegory to explain why. He says, and uh, this is paraphrased, he says that the allegory concerns the, the founder of Hasidism, who would go to a place in the woods and would light a fire and would meditate in prayer. And by doing this, he would mystically perform a difficult task. A generation later, his successor would go to the same place in the woods and would pray, but had, didn't know how to light a fire. However, because he was in the right place and he was saying the right words, he would also accomplish these difficult mystical tasks. A generation later, his successor would go to the same place in the woods, but he did not know how to light a fire or how to pray. But because he was in the right place, he would achieve these mythical, difficult tasks. A generation after that, his successor would go, well, actually wouldn't go because he wouldn't know how to light a fire, wouldn't know how to pray, and wouldn't know where to go. But because he knew how to tell the story of these things, he would accomplish mythical tasks. And Agamben's point is that at the heart of all stories lies mystery. The story emerges from practices that are mysterious or forgotten or impossible, and it takes their place. And he goes on to say, and this is a direct quote, The fire and the tale, the mystery and the story, are two indispensable elements of literature. But in what way can one of the elements, whose presence is the irrefutable proof of the loss of the other, bear witness to this absence, exorcising its shadow and memory? Where there is the tale the fire is out. Where there is mystery, there cannot be story. So in terms of Omega, I think this is what I was taking from the show and what I take from clowns in general. There is something mysterious, mystical about clowns, about the ways in which they inhabit a realm that is recognisable because it is drawn from our weaknesses. But at the same time, and because it is drawn from our weaknesses, it is more powerful than we are because it has a stronger relationship to the fire that Agamben describes. And with the shape of the pain, the mystery that is being explored, which no longer exists, as Agamben says, um, is the non-conveyable experience of individual pain itself, even within us, within our core, within the, the most sensitive primal experiences that we have, there is an absence which requires us to tell the story. And this is what the production was digging into, I think, that the idea that there was a void, that no representation was possible because there was nothing to represent. There is nothing. And it's what essentially we're talking about here is an aporia, which is a Greek word meaning impasse that I talked about in previous episodes. Um, you, you find something which you are incapable of comprehending or articulating with the tools that already exist to you, so you have to create new ones. You've reached the limits of the known and you are forced back onto yourselves. And this is one of McPake's final lines in the, in the show. And I'm quoting because I, I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the script. She says something like, if you can't accept that there are some things that are not transferable, then you're fucked. But if you can accept this, then you're a little bit less fucked. Which I think is beautiful. Foreground the failure of the story, this process of being fucked, which is essentially accepting a mystical experience. 
The audience are positioned at the verge of the known and they are then refused access because there is nothing to access except the story. And they are honored because the production doesn't pretend otherwise. What we are left with is the story. It is all we have and if we lose it and if we lose our faith in it, then we're fucked. They can